This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, we're continuing our journey that we started uh, in September of 2017. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, everybody who comes to the doors on Sunday morning is studying the same passage of Scripture from two years of age on up. And uh, we are in 1 Kings 8. One of the most popular public speaking occasions uh, is the commencement address, and there have been some really popular ones over the years. A former U.S. Admiral Navy SEAL shared with graduates uh, from the University of Texas 10 life lessons that he learned as a Navy SEAL. The first, he said, was to, quote, make your bed the first thing when you get up every morning. He said, if you do, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. That will give you a small sense of pride. It will encourage you to do another task and then another and then another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Wise words that every parent will take home today. And then you have the well-renowned Will Ferrell. Buddy the Elf may make an appearance on some of your television screens this Christmas season. Will Farrell gave the commencement address at the University of Southern California in 2017. He said this, I would like to say thank you for your warm welcome. I would also like to apologize to all the parents sitting there thinking, Will Farrell? Why Will Farrell? I hate him. I hate his movies. He's gross, although he's much better looking in person. Has he lost weight? And he goes on to say, I graduated from this college years ago with a degree of sports information, a degree so arduous, so prestigious, that they discontinued it a few years later. Today, I also receive my honorary doctorate. I have been informed that I can now perform minimally invasive surgery at any time and in any place, even if people don't want it. In fact, I'm legally obligated to perform a surgery at the end of today's address, or my degree will be revoked. If you have a sore tooth you want removed, please meet me at the surgery center. And by surgery center, I mean that windowless van in the parking lot over there. A commencement address is supposed to sum up a philosophy of life, to lay out what you believe are the most essential principles for living. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon essentially gives the people of Israel a commencement address. Though he, his commencement address has some pretty big differences from the ones we're familiar with. And Solomon delivers it, not in the form of a speech, but in the form of a prayer offered at the dedication of the temple that he had built. Now prior to this event, God had given Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. We have an example of this in the very famous cutting the baby in two in order to determine who was the real mother. Solomon wrote more wisdom literature in the Bible than any other writer. One of the 3,000 Proverbs he wrote says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the connection here between knowledge of the Holy One and wisdom is unmistakable and it's evident 
in this commencement address. The main thing that he wants to get across to the nation of Israel isn't how much their world-changing efforts are needed, but rather how much they need the life-changing knowledge and interactive presence of God. So we're going to look at this commencement address under four headings. We're going to look at the hiddenness of God, the clarity of God, the narrow accessibility of God, and the abundant grace of God. The hiddenness of God, the clarity of God, the narrow accessibility of God, and the abundant grace of God. First, the hiddenness of God. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Now, that scene in First Kings 8 is very similar to a scene that took place in Exodus 40 when it before the temple, but, but the tabernacle was traveling with the people of Israel. Here's what we read there. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, it's important not to equate the cloud with God. God is not the cloud. The cloud is not God. Solomon says God dwells in a dark cloud. So the cloud contains, but it veils the very presence of God. Why does God choose to reveal Himself this way? Why does He choose to veil His presence from His people this way? On the one hand, you could recite Exodus 33.20 when God tells Moses that no one can see His face and live to talk about it. But God's ways are often multi-layered. This isn't just an unavoidable reality. God is also teaching His people through it. There is a hiddenness not just to God's being, but there's a hiddenness to God's ways because He is God and we are not. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There is a hiddenness to God's ways. Let's think about this together here. Uh, The prophet Isaiah says that God calls the 3,000 billion trillion stars by name. Calls them all by name. Calls the trillions and trillions of stars by name. I can remember only a fraction of your names. God looks at the trillions and trillions of stars and He says, oh yes, that's Alpha Centauri, that's Betelgeuse, that's Bob. He's so in touch with every aspect of His creation that not a single hair falls off your head without His knowledge. Now, let's compare that to the capacities of our minds. I am clueless how the majority of things in my life work. My car starts making noise. I take it to the shop. They tell me it's a ding alarm or something. And it's going to be $1,200. And I have no idea whether they're making things up or not. Or my phone, it stops working. I don't know why. Maybe it's a battery thing or an operating system thing. Truth be told, I don't know what an operating system is. I only know that every two to three months, my phone asks me if it can put a new one on. And if I say yes in the middle of the day, it's going to be three hours before I can use it again. It's one of the most basic and fundamental pieces of technology in my life, and I can't even begin to explain how it works or what goes wrong. Is it wise... For someone with capacities as limited as that, 
to expect to comprehend everything about God. To subject Him to the bar of our understanding. That we'll immediately grasp how He exists eternally or how He's a trinity or why bad things happen or how all things are working for good. Is it wise for us to subject Him to the bar of our understanding? Solomon says very clearly in Ecclesiastes, he says, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. This is what led one pastor to say that at any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life. And you might be aware of three of them. At any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life. And you might be aware of three of them. The rest remain a mystery. There's a hiddenness about God that is meant to remind us what it means that He's God and we're not. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Knowledge of the Holy One. Knowledge of God is understanding. Wisdom requires you know something about the character, the nature, the ways of God. Which means a truly wise person will acknowledge there is a hiddenness to God. And accept that we won't know or understand the thousands of things that He's doing in our lives at any given moment. Second, the clarity of God. While there's a hiddenness to God, there's a clarity to God simultaneously. Verses 9-12, to there was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the, the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests couldn't perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said He would dwell in a dark cloud. Now God isn't totally nebulous. There is a degree of specificity, and it comes to us in the form of words on tablets. It is significant that the extent of God's revelation of Himself at this juncture in the story are the tablets which reside in the Ark of the Covenant, which rested in the most holy place, the epicenter of God's presence with His people. God is deliberately linking His presence with His written Word. He's deliberately linking His presence with His written Word. It's also significant that God's clarity comes to us in words, not images. Throughout the story of the Old Testament, God's people were encircled by cultures that petrified their gods and goddesses. In those cultures, small household gods were collected, they were feared, images of gods were painted on walls, they were cut into metal, they were carved into logs, they were propped up in fields. So pervasive were the images and idols that the Bible often speaks in shorthand of pagan nations as those who worship wood and stone. By contrast, 
God determined to lead his people through this world of visual idols by words from his own lips in language through his revealed word. But the temptation to follow in the footsteps of pagan cultures was too great. You're familiar with the story, I'm sure. By the time Moses' sandals hit the base of Mount Sinai with God's written commandments, the ones that resided in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place of the temple, by the time Moses' sandals hit the base of the mountain with the tablets in hand, God's people had collected their golden earrings, melted them in a fire, and cast a golden calf. The adornment of the ear was sacrificed in order to create an image pleasing to the eye. The ear, the receiver of God's Word, was plundered for the eye, the receiver of the image. The irony is striking. When it comes to the clarity of God's revelation of Himself, to the specificity of God's communication with human beings, He prefers words over images. So there's a sanctity to words. There is a power to words that we need to insist upon. But that's become increasingly difficult in our culture, in our society. Prior to the 1860s, newspapers published only words. Only words. Line after line, paragraph after paragraph. But in the 1860s and 1870s, publishers discovered new ways to incorporate images into print, and it attracted new audiences. This was a significant innovation that Daniel Borston labeled as the graphic revolution. And it was a revolution that forever changed the way Americans received their news. Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, explains the consequences of it. He writes, the new focus on the image undermined traditional definitions of information, of news, and to a large extent of reality itself. First in billboards, posters, and advertisements, and later in such new magazines and papers as Life, Look, New York Daily Mirror, Daily News. The pictures forced exposition into the background and in some instances obliterated it altogether. By the end of the 19th century, advertisers and newspapermen had discovered that a picture was not only worth a thousand words, but where sales were concerned was better. For countless Americans, seeing, not reading, became the basis for believing. So what's the takeaway? Well, if you're going to know God, you have to buck the cultural trend that insists on images over words. If you're going to know God, you have to be a word person. You have to be a word person. God's greatest clarity, His greatest specificity with us comes through words, not images. The wise person sees that as an essential to live by. Third, the narrow accessibility of God. Look at verses 27-29. to But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. 
Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. So if God really does dwell in hiddenness, but has revealed Himself in a specific place, in a specific way, it follows that the only way to really know Him is to seek Him at the place He has designated. Contemporary wisdom, the modern day thought, of course, says the opposite. What is the modern day philosophy of life, of of, of existence out there? The more sophisticated and worldly wise we become, the more we'll see that God is like a mountain. And different religions are really just paths up that mountain. We may prefer our path, but the truly wise person sees that they all lead to the top in the end. This attitude is epitomized in a parable I heard several years ago. Several blind men fall into a pit. An elephant happens to be in the pit. So the blind men begin to argue about what they've discovered. Grabbing the tusk, one says, it's like a spear. Grabbing the tail, another says, no, it's like a rope. Feeling the elephant's side, still another says, it's like a wall. And the last takes hold of an ear, claiming it's like a fan. The point's pretty clear. We're the blind men, groping about in the dark, and God is the elephant. We've got to stop being so narrow-minded and dogmatic and open up our minds a little bit. The first problem with stories like this, though, is the hidden arrogance of the person telling them. On the surface, it seems humble to say we all only see a part of of God's truth. On the surface, it looks humble to say that. That would be well and good if it weren't for the total enlightenment that the speaker assumes for herself. Both the illustrations above reflect the problem. With the mountain illustration, the narrator looks at us feeble religious folks stumbling up our path and says, well... If you could just see what I see, you'd realize that all these paths are the same. With the elephant parable, it's even clearer. The blind men, again, this is us, don't know what they're looking at, but the narrator does. That's the only way she can confidently conclude that the blind men are interacting with one complex reality. She sees it and can correct their ignorance. It takes some real mental gymnastics to claim that the major religions of the world are saying complementary things. The mountain and elephant metaphors hinge on this notion that religious claims are complementary. Certainly many of them can be, but all of them? Religions ask dozens of questions, and the answers they provide on any one issue, prove impossible to reconcile. Take just one example. Take the issue of what happens when people die. Some say you go to heaven or hell. Some say you're reincarnated to another life here on earth. Some say you just disappear into nothingness. Look, even a child can see that you can't possibly do all of those things at once. But the main problem I have with these open-minded approaches is that they don't align with any other aspect of our lives. Where else in our lives do we think with such silly reasoning? Or to put it differently, who else would you approach 
with the foolhardy assurance that it doesn't matter where you look. If you're having a heart attack, you need a cardiologist. But what if you decide to head to Walmart to find one? You think, I love Walmart. The prices are great. There aren't any pesky employees around to bother me by asking if I need anything. So I think I'll take the the heart problem there. You can be as sincere as you want, but you won't find what you're looking for at Walmart. You can get a lot at Walmart, a a Big Mac, an an eye exam, a haircut, a tire rotation, a a, a bathing suit you'll immediately regret, but heart surgery, that's not your best bet. If you want to find a cardiologist, it matters where you look. Yes? If you want to find a cardiologist, it matters where you look. And the consequences of looking in the wrong place can be fatal. Come to my place, the cardiologist says, with my name on the door and my healing instruments inside. I can give you help, but you actually have to come to me. God has declared, my name will be there, in that place, in the temple. If you want to seek me, if you want to find me, you need to come there. And while the temple is no longer the dwelling place of God on earth, Jesus is. And the same message emanates from Him. If you want to find God, you have to come to Me, Jesus says. What did He say? He said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to God except through Me. That's it. This is the narrow accessibility of God. Fourth, the abundant grace of God. The biggest chunk of this commencement address, the biggest chunk of this prayer, uh, verses 33 to 53, are all about God's willingness to forgive and to restore after we sin. The biggest chunk of it is devoted to those topics. Let's look at a portion of that. Starting in verse 46, Solomon's praying. This way he says, When they sin against you, watch this, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies, who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near, If they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, Uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captives to show them mercy. See, this is the big difference between Solomon's commencement address and all the commencement speeches of our day, which are honestly largely flattery and nonsense. 
You're all above average. You're special. You're unique. A snowflake. You're a skittle. Nothing can stop you from achieving your dreams except, of course, for a disease or a little bad luck or getting hit by a bus in the parking lot or the fact that half of you have marriages that will end in divorce. But let's not think any about that. Let's just offer a bunch of meaningless platitudes that make you feel invincible. Solomon's whole prayer, by contrast, is built on the understanding that we are desperate sinners who need God's help after we mess things up. In fact, there is a disturbing reality about this prayer that you might overlook. The whole ceremony was bathed in blood. Verse 5 tells us that before the prayer, King Solomon sacrificed sheep, goats, and cattle that could not be numbered because there were so many. And then when it was done, verse 63, then Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So on top of the innumerable sacrifices already made, which is north of 142,000, because apparently 142,000 was not too large to count. So in addition to the 142,000, in addition to the innumerable, there's 142,000 more animal sacrifices. Do you know how bloody and messy this would have been? The ground Solomon was standing on was literally, literally soaked in blood. Now, that might be moribund to you, but it shows us that the entire basis of our relationship with God, the very ground we stand on with Him, is the blood of sacrifices for sin. All this blood pointed to the blood of the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, who would one day be slain for the forgiveness of sins. When we walk into the presence of God, we stand on ground soaked in the blood of Jesus. And that is a really good thing for us. Because as Solomon says, there is no one who doesn't sin. There is no one who doesn't mess up relationships and suffer the effects of poor decisions or go through a time where they lose their mind and play the fool. And when you come to your senses, here is God standing in a place filled to overflowing with the blood of Jesus, ready to forgive and restore. And so Solomon says, when you pray toward this place, you can Rebound from defeat. You can regain lost blessings. You can request personal healing. We can regroup for spiritual victory. We can repent and be restored. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, the writer of Hebrews says, and find time, help in our time of need. C.S. Lewis was once asked the difference between Christianity and the other religions. And he answered in a single word, grace. When you come into this place of worship with a life that's messed up by sin, you don't have to feel condemned because Jesus was condemned in your place. 
the ground we stand on for worship is soaked in the blood of Jesus who was condemned for our sin. So here you have a summary of the knowledge of the Holy One, which constitutes wisdom, essential for living. It's to acknowledge the fact that our God is hidden. At any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. The wise person remembers that and rests in that, trusts through it. Our God is simultaneously clear. God reveals Himself to us in words, not images. The wise person is a person of words. Our God is narrowly accessible. We access God on the terms He has established, not the ones we like to project onto Him. And He's a God of abundant grace. Abundant grace. It should make us feel small and loved simultaneously. Let's pray. God, you have taught us that we are not to boast in our worldly wisdom. We're not to boast in our strength or our riches. But to boast that we have the understanding to know you. God, implant in us a thirst to pursue You, to read Your Word, to commune with You in prayer. Through this, God, to enliven our love for You and amplify our trust in You. To walk each day with a belief in Your unblemished goodness. God, I pray that You would impress upon our hearts the life and forgiveness Jesus has accomplished for us through the cross. Help us to see again the uniqueness of Christianity in a world filled with competing religions and philosophies. And that this uniqueness can be boiled down to a single concept, and that is grace. Jesus, we worship You for the perfect life You lived in our place and the death You died. We praise You for that now. For Your glory, we sing these songs. We lift our voices. We elevate our thoughts to You. Amen.